HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by listeners like you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And here we are, sort of, a little theme has developed here, and that might be, well, we'll see next week if it becomes a theme that's developed, but here we have our second in a row of sandwiches. And, you know, historians often study a culture through the lens of its food and foodways, and sandwiches are somehow very approachable for this study in these last couple of shows. But it's rare, in fact, that one particular food or dish persists so dynamically, one could say tenaciously, through a culture's economic struggles, political strife, and emigration, and takes on a life of its own in another country. In fact, in this case, globally. So it has been with the Cuban sandwich. Yet, very few can agree on what the origins were of this iconic sandwich. And fortunately, my guests, and along with a couple other authors, have written a new book that explains these origins, um, or at least attempts to, and, and some of the deeper meanings of the history. According to them, the history lies between the layers. My guest today is Andrew Hughes, curator of Florida Studies at University of Florida, University of South Florida, excuse me, Libraries, and he's the author of From Saloons to Steakhouses, A History of Tampa. And along with him, Barbara Cruz, a professor at University of Southern of South Florida as well. Um, she's a professor of social science and Jeff Hoke who is a um, marketing and restaurant group food writer and blogger. And they are all living right now in Tampa. So I don't let you know that ahead of time. They might be skewed on who has the best sandwich. We'll see. (laughs) But we'll hear that directly from the author himself, Andy. Andy, welcome so much to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Linda. It's great to be here. Uh, This is, it. you know, upon first glance, it's, 
a slim book. It's not, you know, doesn't look like this huge tome of um, years and years of history. And yet, once you get into it, the book, oh, now I'm sorry that I didn't say the name of the book again. I do that often. And that is The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers. Pretty much described that in the beginning. But this book is just packed full of of history recipes, um, uh, background on people who have been making the sandwich for a long time, uh, takes on on you know on on your hypotheses of what the origins were, and along with some you know good research to back it up. But why don't you tell me what? The, what drove you to write this book and how and what you feel the history is of of this sandwich in you know in, in light of Cuban cuisine in total yeah well um yeah, like you said I live in Tampa and I really became enamored with Tampa's history um, and and fell in love with the the history here the immigrant groups and the the Cuban history um, and kind of, you know, got interested in all that stuff and was really interested as a graduate student in sort of documenting the history of the of Tampa in a different way. And I really felt like that the food had been neglected, especially by scholars, and that, you know, a, a lot of attention had been paid to cigar workers and lots of other really great and fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. But I felt like this was... Um, something that was really had been neglected and um and none of my colleagues at the time this is in the late 90s mid to late 90s no one was really looking in that direction at the time and the food network was was just kind of breaking um uh, so yeah i became really interested in the history there and i ended up talking to people about the cuban sandwich and of course trying it for myself and um you know, I heard a lot of people grumble that, oh, Miami gets all the attention about the Cuban <laughs> sandwich. And at one point I wrote an article uh, in a local magazine that sort of got picked up by the um, Southern Foodways Alliance. And it got reprinted in their uh, Cornbread Nation when they were still doing those kind of mm-hmm. best of Southern food writings. And anyway, and it was sort of a little polemic about how Tampa had been left out of the equation, you know, especially in the the 80s and the 90s. You know, if people talked about Cuban sandwiches, it was, you know, they just went straight to Miami. Um, and, you know, the the general narrative was that the Cuban sandwich arrived sometime in the early 60s or the late 50s with all the, the people that fled Castro. But it kind of left out, uh, you know, a, a whole century of history that was happening before that and generations of Cubans who had come before. So, you know, I, I was never one to argue necessarily that it, it, the Cuban sandwich was invented in Tampa. There's a lot of people here that like to believe that. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, I, uh, I felt like it had still been left out. So long story short, that article sort of made me um, uh, the only expert or the only person who had, you know, done much writing or research specifically about the sandwich, you know, at least, um, uh, outside of, you know, a couple newspaper writers. So, um, so eventually people just started calling me, you know, asking if they're writing an article about the Cuban sandwich, asking for information. And I'm a librarian and an archivist by trade. So I help people do research. And after years of this, you know, after 
after a while, I started telling myself, I, sh- I, re- I really need to write something just to answer these questions. Um, and of course, it is, you know, it's something fun to talk about. Part of my, my theory about the, the popularity of the sandwich is it's simply fun to say, you know. And if you were someone, say, 100 years ago, and no one else had heard of this thing, and you'd say, have you tried a Cuban sandwich? You know, <laughs> it's got all kinds of stuff in it. <laughs> um, so I think that's that's part of the appeal, you know. Um, but, yeah, so that, that kind of tells you the how I arrived at it because I felt like, in a way, the subject sort of chose me. And, um, and of course, you know, I've always been really interested in eating Cuban sandwiches. But it's at one point around 2000 or so in the late 90s, I sort of – I don't know. I, I I felt like nobody was trying very, you know, people weren't trying very hard typically. And, um, and I, and, you know, so I'm, I'm happy to report. I, I see that changing too. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a whole, I think in general, there's a whole, you know, new focus on food in particular, right. particularly people's, um, that what they identified food with, what, what it means to them. And, and if there is something that is, you know, that you're well known for doing, people are super, you know, doing a super great job paying attention to it. I have to say that I, I really didn't know that much at all about the Cuban sandwich. And um, so I went down to Miami in the early nineties. I said, I gotta have one. I gotta have what everyone's talking about. And this was very early nineties. Yeah a Cuban sandwich. So someone said, well, yeah, you go down to this stretch here and you go into you know, up the, this little window. You can really order it right from the window. I was so disappointed. You know, not all Cuban sandwiches are equal, as you right. will tell us. Right? <laughs> and so then over the years, I have just been, you know, so excited and, and thrilled to see all the, um, the attention that it's gotten and right. on menus all over the place. And I live in New York. So, in, you know, in New York, suddenly it's, you know, it's, you can find it in just about uh, um, every sandwich place. I mean, there's always going to be a version of a Cuban. And, and that was, I think that's terrific. But you keep saying about Miami and you know, Tampa and was it, you know, invented there, but surely it goes back further than that. As you said, what can you tell me about, the actual history of of the sandwich in terms of when it what what it is what it is at first for those right. who are uninitiated. Okay, um, well, it depends on when and where and who you are, uh, you know, of what's in it. But uh, in general, it's been sort of standardized um, at this point. So the Miami version is, um, you know, Cuban bread with a ham and roast pork, uh, pickles. Swiss cheese and mustard. Right. And then, you know, Tampa's version typically adds salami. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, as you go farther back, it becomes more and more uh, amorphous. So you have all kinds of different combinations that are happening in Cuba, across the United States, um, et cetera. So it, it really was sort of a blank canvas in some respects. Um, typically, you'd start with ham and pork and then augment it from there. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because um, you, in the book, the description of the sandwich and its origins in Cuba, what came as a sandwich made of very, I don't want to say exotic ingredients, but, it, you know, not your quotidian kind of sandwich filling. I mean, these were uh, a lot of imported items, like Swiss cheese and, you know, and some of the other things. 
what do you have any any leads on that as to how that how that all came about yeah well in cuba of course sort of the gateway to the new world for you know a long time ever since mm-hmm. it had been colonized by the spanish so it's sort of a waypoint for and then also you've got lots and lots of immigrants who are living especially in havana you know um it was known as a very cosmopolitan city in the 1800s. So you've got people from all over the world who are living there, doing business there, etc. And um, uh, and so all those, you know, you know, different uh, influences were really felt in Cuba, and especially you know, kind of well-to-do Cubans were really interested in what the, kind of the latest fads were and everything. So they took a lot of cues from Havana, from New York City. Um, and from other places, but I'd say Havana and New York were the two uh, really leading lights in, in as far as like influences. So, um, right. you, know, you know, so the like Cuban bread, for example, is, is deeply influenced by like Spanish barra bread, as well as, you know, um, as well as French bread. French bread was very popular in Cuba. Um, so, uh, yeah. you know, but then, you, you know, you mentioned imports too, and that's really important. So, you know, you got the steamship is really becoming standardized in the mid 1800s. And by the late 1800s, you start to have like refrigerated shipping. So that means that the island of Cuba, suddenly there's all kinds of imports that weren't available before. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially, you know, all kinds of processed meats. And so that was, you know, a big deal. And, And you can just see it in the Cuban newspapers you know, where Armour and Swift and other meat packers are starting to have, you know, more um, more ads in the newspapers about, you know, all their different products and marketing products specifically, you know, to Cubans. Yeah. And, you know, prior to that, one in the, you know, one of the first, I mean, the country was just constantly being riddled by, you know, pol- getting caught in the middle of political battles and, and right. people wanting to control them, right? Um, so they were always fighting for their freedom and independence. And I thought that um, your description of um, of Cubans using, trying to separate, well, obviously wanting their independence from Spain, wanting to separate themselves and, and show their individual identities. In, and often they did that through the food, often, which, you know, right. dishes that were, were really Cuban- um, and not Spanish. Oh, that's a Spanish dish. I mean, it must be. It's in Spanish. It must be a Spanish dish. And yet they would say, "No, no, these are this is Cuban and with the Cuban flavors." Um, that that carried over to the sandwich as well. I think, right? And, yeah. Well, at the time that you know, in the kind of era that the sandwich was born in, you know, you start to see, um, like, in the mid eighteen hundreds, um, you know, there's this real push for for independence or at least autonomy within the Spanish empire. Right. And, um, uh, you know, and part of that kind of making of a new nation was to, you know, to distinguish themselves through their food. So, uh, you know, anything Criollo, anything Creole was exalted as more Cuban, you know, um, and more, you know, fundamental to their identity. So, like ajiaco, the a stew that goes back to um, the earliest days of the colony, that was, you know, 
considered like one of the bedrocks of Cuban identity, you know, and um, even Fernando Ortiz, you know, a really um, notable anthropologist from Cuba, you know, he he talked about it as, yeah, being the, the bedrock of identity, you know, it, it had influences from, you know, the chilies from Native Americans, it had the meat, uh, typically beef or pork from the Spanish, and then you've got um, the slave foods, uh, you know, root vegetables that are associated with slave food. So you put those three things together and you've got Cuba in a pot. So mm. Mm. Interesting, Cuba in a pot. Like and this it. idea, of course, that also that an ajiaco, it could simmer for weeks and you could just keep adding ingredients, you know, as long as you keep cooking it, right? Um, and this idea that it's never quite finished, kind of like Cuba, you know, it's always simmering. There's always something new being included, but then also it's like this, it's, it's similar to the melting pot analogy, except that the pieces of in the ingredients that go into an ajiaco don't disappear. They don't melt. Mm-hmm. They, they become suffused by the other ingredients and they offer their own flavors into the pot. But, um, it's a, it's a much more, uh, I think compelling, you know, uh, metaphor for a, for a country in ajiaco. Yeah. I love that um, um, about the fact that like Cuba, it's never done. And I can just see the simmering pot of stew, you know, just keep adding, oh, you know, the cousins are coming, add more beef, <laughs> you know, add more peppers. You know, it's like, right. that's great. I like that. Um, when the sandwich, um, well, even before that, there were the, um, they talk, you talked about um, the country being this political strife from, you know, between the sugar market and the slave market and to Cold War being trapped and controlled by other countries. So how does the sand, how is a sandwich representative or or is a metaphor for this, you know, this struggle to, um, for independence? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways to look at it. So, you know, first of all, I think that Cubans were, you know, they wanted a new identity, and Ajiaco was an example of the old colonial identity. Now, while they considered it thoroughly Cuban, it was old Cuba, you know, and they think they they wanted dishes that were going to um, represent new Cuba. Now, I don't think people were necessarily thinking this out loud, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> yeah. they, as you're aspiring to a nation, you want to create new things too. And um, so, you know, one of the things that's happening at the time is baseball became an all-consuming thing, you know, and mm-hmm. baseball was considered very American. And so a lot of the cultural cues started to come from America, and not just that, but, uh, you know, investment, all this stuff, you know, people, you know, the kind of the founding fathers of America, some of the early uh, uh, um, politicians of the United States, you know, were always fantasized about getting Cuba someday, you know, and said that someday, you know, that that it will be a ripe fruit and it will just fall into our lap. And in 1895, that's more or less the the position that Cuba found itself in because America was exerting so much um, economic influence and, and investing so much in the Island and Spain was still struggling to to keep some sort of control and tax the heck out of them. So anyway, uh, eventually um, in 1898, you know, we went to war with Spain uh, in 1895 is when the the Cubans um, started waging the war for independence, um, mm. and so that's how we kind of stepped in. And I think you know all this all this stuff starts coming together, 
and um, and we talked about all the foreign influences, like with cold cuts and stuff. So, if, like for example, you know, one of the earliest loncheros that I found, um, and a lonchero was um, the lunch counter man. He he basically was responsible for slicing all the meats and the cheeses before there was kind of mechanized things to do this, um, and they were considered very, uh, you know. Uh, they had a very high position in society for what they did because sandwiches were important. Not only that, but they were posh. You know, these ingredients didn't come cheaply. So the, you know, the hams and all this stuff, a lot of the stuff is being imported from the United States, from Germany and from England. And so, so a lot of the earliest sandwiches that I found in, in Cuba are actually being marketed to foreigners. Uh, you know, they mm. were the ones who typically had the money and ate um, all these kind of important ingredients. So what I think the Cuban sandwich represents is sort of taking what they liked best from this culinary cornucopia, you know, that they inherited from around the world and putting it in, you know, in a sandwich. And um, it was pretty revolutionary in the late 1800s to put more than one meat in a sandwich. Mm-hmm. There, weren't, there weren't even many sandwiches that had meat and cheese together. You know, mm-hmm. you'd have a cheese sandwich or you'd have a ham sandwich. Um, so uh, this idea of layering three, four ingredients and cheese, etc., was it got a lot of attention. You know, I think um, Americans were like, wow, you know, um, the uh, club sandwich had just been invented in like the early 1880s. And so uh, the Cuban sandwich was was not far behind by the 18 end of the 1890s you know cuba is known for for really good sandwiches mm-hmm. so like for example when a, a bunch of our soldiers went and invaded cuba um to kick out the spanish um uh you know they all went there looking for sandwiches you know they a lot of them were you know saying you know i'm, I'm not leaving that island till i get a cuban sandwich and of course the <laughs> island had been completely ransacked by years of warfare right. scorched earth warfare so there probably weren't many sandwiches to be found there then but in the years immediately after the war as cuba rebuilt you know uh there were sandwiches just everywhere and you know i should point out too that sandwiches were really having a global moment in the I, you know i was just going to bring that up there was all suddenly this whole you know modern well you, you mentioned baseball you know so it's a, it was whole modern era of, of a sandwich right right yeah, so sandwiches were kind of cutting edge. They've been around for a while, but you know, by the by, nineteen hundred, you start to have much more commercial bakeries opening across the United States. Um, you know, less and less bread is actually being made at home. More and more sandwiches are being made out and about. You know, um, already, you know, by mid-century, if you're traveling by rail, there's cheap sandwiches to eat and things like that. Um, but, you know, it also became, sandwiches became a darling of the rich, you know. So um, the the Cuban sandwich is really a, uh, it was really a novelty and a, and a luxury item, you know, when you have all these different things. And, you know, originally it's known as a mixto. So there, you know, it's not known as a Cuban sandwich in Cuba. It's just a mixed sandwich. You could also see uh, sometimes called sortito, sortito, the word, um, like an assortment. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this could be, you know, almost anything. And, and a lot of times you would see really wild, you know, strange things, especially the, the first recipes in English are um, of the kind of posh variety <clears throat> and very strange. You know, it's like take uh, a thick piece of soft white cheese, 
you know, lettuce and, and like salad dressing. And they'd say that it was such a big sandwich, you'd have to eat it with a knife and fork, but it's got three ingredients in it. You know, it just didn't make much sense compared to, I think, what Cubans were actually eating. So, um, and it's interesting there too. Like if you look at Cuban sources and early cookbooks, the sandwiches are all of the posh variety. They're all of like the the finger food, crustless, on sliced bread variety. Um, even as late as the twenties, I was just looking at a, um, a nineteen twenty five cookbook from Havana the other day, and yeah, they're all like caviar <laughs> type sandwiches and things. Hmm. So you know, um, a working man sandwich it was kind of considered, uh, you know. Um, not part of that equation and by the 1920s the cuban sandwich had become something that you could buy at several different price points and um so you know by the 1950s somebody is talking about that if you're a banker you you ate a banker's cuban sandwich in this neighborhood if you're a bricklayer you know you'd had a different version at a different price point Hmm. etc and all up and down the, the social hierarchy um and you know i don't want to get ahead of myself but you know with with immigration and um, kind of the trauma of exile that changed here in the United States where Cuban sandwiches had to be cheap. They had to be very affordable uh, for, for anybody. Um, And, you know, it was very difficult for, you know, a Cuban cafe owner to, to raise prices on, you know, on, on his fellow people who were, we're coming right um, and that and there's a that's a topic we'll get into right yeah. after a short break so stay tuned there's so much more to talk about and i'm getting hungry okay as usual <laughs> okay so stay tuned we'll be right back with andrew hughes this episode is brought to you by roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years roberta's was founded in bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Andrew Hughes. And he, along with um, a couple of his colleagues, have written a new book, and it's called The Cuban Sandwich. A history in layers, and Andy, you mentioned that you know the layer. We, we were talking about the layers, you know, in between these layers, kind of change or keep getting added to often. But really, I mean, you you wrote a lot about the introduction of pork when you know when that came along. This really cemented the ideas for the sandwich, I would imagine. You know, the the roast pork being what the lechon lechon. 
right? Um, but the but the pork that's cooked um, for the sandwiches, it does it always have the same recipe? Does it always that you found? Does it always is it always no. stewed the same or no? None of, actually none of the ingredients are there. I don't think anyone can agree on almost almost anything. I mean the yellow mustard is probably the easiest thing to agree upon, but some people mix it with mayonnaise. Some people do other things. So, Mm. uh, but I think the pork is, is probably one of the most variable. And what's interesting in our research is, you know, depending who you talk to, you get different answers, but I think the old school, the people are of the oldest school, Lechon is from the leg. It's from the leg of the pork. And Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's important because um, typically in the old days, you know, you would make a pork roast on the bone and it will be carved by the lonchero off the bone. Um, so that like the ham and the pork both would typically be on the bone. And the lechon, because it's on the leg like that, it can be carved off the bone. It can be sliced thinly and put onto sandwiches. Mm-hmm. So the old school places would have, would, would have it sliced, kind of like a deli meat, but it's not a processed deli meat. It would be, you know, roast pork. Um, that, you know, didn't come out of kind of a factory type condition. Right. I mean, and upon first glance, you say, well, it's, you know, okay, it's a ham and pork sandwich with a little melted cheese. But somehow, well, don't forget the pickles, but somehow the, you know, the combination of that just all, well, that depends whether it's heated or not heated. uh, that started to that's to another layer right. right that's another layer but those the taste it just all melds together and i i can see where you know if if you were a, someone living in exile that a bite of that would just you know make you swoon with memories of you know of home absolutely but let's talk about that the another layer and that's the heating um uh, you know, like, so now we have paninos that are always put in the sandwich press and, you know, it's more of a common thing, but this has been, this has been going on for some time with a, right. With a Cuban well, and, and also just to finish up on the pork really quick, yes. yeah, yeah. you know, uh, you know, a lot of people today, they, they might use pork loin cause it's lean, but that's not really, that's kind of wrong headed. So there's, there's a lot of different ways, but yeah, I, as far as we could tell the late John was, was the kind of the foundational thing. Mm. Um, now, what will we jump into next? I'm yeah, sorry. you need because you need that fat. You need that fat right. to bring it all together, right? Oh, b- about well, first of all, we'll, the whole thing oh, the is heating, right? The heating and the bread. I mean, the bread yeah. is the thing. It's always the thing yeah. in the sandwich, you know. Yeah, I mean, the bread's really important, and you know, the thing is, is that you know, Tampa and Miami have different generations of bakers as well, or or um, take. To, you know, their bakers take cues from different generations. And there's really one in particular here in Tampa that stands out, La Segunda Central. Um, and they, you know, they make some of the best Cuban bread anywhere, um, especially of the old school. So the older school Cuban bread is crustier. Um, you know, it's, it's not a mass produced item. So, um, you know, what happened is, it, between the 1890s, sort of uh, where we got our recipe from, or around the turn of the century, and the 19, you know, mid 1950s, where a lot of Miami's bakers took their cues from, baking in, in Cuba itself changed. So it, it um, you know, it was influenced a lot by the United States and a lot of the mass production techniques done here, to where you'd have, you know, you might have a dozen 
loaves of bread on a single pan, for example, or, or 20. Um, whereas in, you know, La Segunda, there's, there's several extra steps that they would take. So one of those is while the bread is proofing, they would, um, they put it on racks in front of the ovens and they open the ovens and let the, the warm air kind of wash over. They have uh, fans that are blowing on the on the bread and kind of dry time, it out before yeah, they bake so it. Yeah. Exactly. And that's how you get that right like paper thin crusty layer mm-hmm. and then the interior is still really nice and soft and kind of airy. Um, so that's uh, you know that and also when they they put it in the oven they put the uh, the loaves directly into the hearth. So it's it's you know directly on the the hot brick etc and um, it's really instrumental for getting that that kind of shattering thin crust. Now, does Segundo are do they are they the ones that use the palmetto leaves on top? Correct. Yeah. So that goes back to Cuba as well, and uh, take a thin slice of, of palmetto leaf, and it's really a signature for them and and for a few other bakeries who still do it. Um, and uh, you know, there's been a lot of debate about why that was there and. The, the best that I could tell um, is a couple of colleagues and I have been kind of discussing it. And, and one of them um, in particular, uh, John O. Miller, uh, he wrote a whole book about um, uh, uh, the, the palm. Uh, the, one oh, the, the palmetto. The- yeah. And anyway, uh, and it's it, it, the best we could tell it's sort of um, like a thermometer or it's, uh, you know, a, a gauge for when there's too much heat. So if you start to see the palmetto leaves, you know, starting to singe a little bit, then, uh, you know, that means you probably need to rotate your bread or shift it around because, mm-hmm. you know, originally this is all done in wood burning ovens and you could have really hot spots and cooler spots, especially because a lot of the early ovens were, were made by hand here in Tampa um, and, you know, might've been put together rather quickly at first. So yeah. so is it, this is the pan de agua that Segundo makes, right? Right, right. So, so yeah. And water the, bread, right? Flour yeah, exactly. It doesn't really yeah, um, have any fat in it per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it just has such a short shelf life. You know, t- typically like really good Cuban bread, it's got about maybe 24 hours, you know, uh, if that. I mean, in the old days, it would go stale more or less by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, there's there's a couple interesting things around that. So, first of all, it sort of um, begs the question if the if the, the the pressing came about to give Miami sandwiches more of a toasted, um, you know, type of feel, whereas Tampa was already kind of crusty. But the thing is, what's interesting is in Tampa they were already heating up their sandwiches. Um, you know, I read about as early as the 1940s, like the Columbia has a special um, warming oven, the Columbia restaurant to put um, sandwiches in. And then other people were using Taylor's iron. So like a heavy. I, lo- I loved that. I, yes, I read- <laughs> right. And you would, you would put it in a skillet and then put the Taylor's iron, hot Taylor's iron on top. And that would, that would press it. Um, yeah. Cause I was figuring, wait a minute, they didn't have, you know, these electric sandwich presses then. I mean, <laughs> right. Well, what's interesting too, is I found an ad for a sandwich press in the Cuban newspaper in the 1920s. So just put it on were, the stove and heat it up. Right. Yeah. And, they they yeah. were none of these electric, you could plug them in. Um, you know, they were, it was very newfangled technology at the time, but, yeah. uh, 
but they they did exist they just it didn't become a universal thing until yeah really Miami is the one you know who who really um institutionalized the pressing you know right. for a lot of people you just can't have it not pressed and it it is amazing what it does to the sandwich you know to what could already be a really good sandwich or what could take you know you can take a mediocre sandwich and make it even you know make it even more than passable <laughs> right, so. right um well i would be remiss we um we're talking about the bread of tampa and all but if we didn't talk about the group of people who really popularized the sandwich quite a bit and those were the cigar workers right um now they were primarily in um well everywhere i mean key west and miami and but york, certainly yeah. in tampa and, and new york right but um uh, give us a little background on that yeah so cigars were a hugely important industry you know sugar was of course um probably the original you know big industry out of cuba mm-hmm. um and that was you know really associated with slavery whereas tobacco was kind of considered um more of a noble pursuit um you know it didn't depend on slave labor um and it depended on a lot of skilled labor and these skilled cigar workers became the backbone of of the the workforce for cigar factories and you know originally this was in havana and other parts of cuba but over time there was so much instability in cuba that more and more factories started to relocate to the united states um so originally a lot of these came to Key West, um, some came to New York, um, and then a lot of them left Key West and came up to Tampa, Florida. And so that's how Key West and Tampa got such um, early uh, you know, Cuban communities, because these were skilled workers. And, you know, it would take years to, to learn to do the jobs they did. So it simply wasn't possible just to draft a bunch of you know, people who are here in Tampa, um, you know, they, you had to have the, those cigar workers and they were really almost all Cuban. You know, later we, we, there was a lot more Spanish who joined the, uh, the cigar workforces. And there were some of those in, in Havana as well. And then later Sicilians became a really important part of the workforce here as well. Uh, but Cuba, you know, the Cubans were the ones who really called the cultural shots, uh, you know, in a big way. So, Ybor City here in Tampa was made to just be a virtual replica of, of Havana. So everything from, you know, the food, the the cigars, the coffee, um, and the, the lampposts, you know, everything was, was hmm. meant to, you know, the architecture. Um, so, you know, I, I find that really interesting. You know, the thing that I find the most challenging was, was Key West just because there are so few written sources to work with that uh, it's very difficult to tell, you know, if the sandwich was popular there at the time or if there were sandwiches, what, you know, what was in them. Um, so that's, that's difficult. Um, yeah. So I, I know that there's probably more of a role there and I would be, I'd be surprised if there wasn't some sort of proto sandwich. I'm not sure if it was the mixto yet, but it would be really interesting to see what it was. So. Yeah. Well, I, I thought it was interesting too that these cigar workers would often break several times 
you know, to, for a little coffee break and a sandwich break. But the sandwiches would be like we consider little tea sandwiches, right? Little, little. Yeah, much smaller. Three by three squares or something very, you know, a little more delicate because it was just a snack. Right. Yeah, well, and they would be on Cuban bread, so it mm-hmm. wouldn't be a square sandwich exactly, mm-hmm. but it would be, first of all, the Cuban bread, the girth was a lot less than it was now. I mean, when they talked about Cuban bread in like the 19 aughts in Havana itself, people said it was about this, you know, the width, it was about as big around as a silver dollar. Huh. So, I mean, that's a pretty small loaf of bread. Yeah, so a little coin-sized sandwich, yes. All right, so you'd have, you know, you'd have pretty small sandwiches, I think, back then. And, um, you know, and a lot of this, you got to think, too, it was very popular at night. You know, we uh, the Medianoche, uh, you know, is one that you can't not talk about. It's basically very similar to a mixto or a Cuban sandwich, but it's, it's served on different bread, served on an egg bread that's um, closer to like a, a challah bread. Um, hmm. But, uh, and, you know, one of the reasons for that is because, you know, my guess is that all the Cuban bread that was made that morning was all stale by midnight. <laughs> or <laughs> gone. Know? Or gone. Yeah. <laughs> and it was also considered, it was a little bit of a sweeter bread. So it was just considered like even more of a treat, you know. Um, midnight a, snack, a medianoche, right? Right. Yeah. Something to eat after. And, you know, like I said, these aren't giant sandwiches. People are eating them after theater and before going to bed. So, you know, I, I just don't think that um, the sandwiches back then were, were huge. Yeah. Like you see in some places now, you know. Well, there is just so much information packed into this book, and and you are are giving us so many wonderful stories from your research. And um, I mean, as you as the book kind of closes up with, you say the devil is in the details, and trying to find out which version is authentic, what's you know what the origins. The devil is in the details, and that you have told us, you have given us such an example of that. Because the sandwich, as you've written, is not composed of a handful of ingredients, but a series of recipes constructed from a whole. There's a sense of place to consider, that immeasurable, intangible sense of authenticity when your experience, in this case a sandwich, resonates with the places and the people around you. And I just think that it just illustrates so much how you <clears throat> how you have all said in your title a history in layers, and certainly you've given us a, a little bird's eye view into the what's between those layers. And thank you so much. It's just been a pleasure to talk to you, and I encourage people to take a look at this book if you love a Cuban sandwich or if you want to know more about Cuban food history, and that's The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers. And my guest has been Andrew Hughes, curator and archivist of Florida Studies at University of South Florida Libraries. Andy, thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Linda. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.